Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. So what was the motivation behind Asana Voices? Cam, that's such a great question. The motivation behind Asana Voices uh, was unfortunately after George Floyd's brutal murder. Uh, in June of 2020, me and three of my friends who were all part of the South Asian organization based in the U.S. Um, got together and realized that our community was completely quiet came to all the racial injustices that were going on in the U.S. And we wanted to make sure that we were part of an active and ongoing discussion that can drive positive change. When we brought this topic to our community, they had brushed it off as a political issue and they didn't want to get involved in it. And because of that, we were not only upset, but we realized that many other South Asian organizations might be going through the same thing. So within 48 hours, we had launched Asana Voices, the Alliance of South Asians in North America, as a platform to educate and engage South Asians in North America on critical issues. Okay. Why do you think people were silent about that important issue? So it's, it's a lot to unpack because you are really taking generations upon generations upon generations of being told to stay quiet, put your head down, not worry about authoritarian figures, not worry about figures that have more agency over your life than you wouldn't, primarily because of uh, South Asia's deep-rooted ties to colonialism. And unfortunately, that was very difficult to, to rewire. And that has definitely carried over into the States. And uh, you know, even, even though South Asians started coming here after the Civil Rights Act in the 60s, they quickly tried their best to assimilate in the higher echelon of society um, and tried staying closer to what the affluent groups, what the whiter groups were trying to stay closer to and had completely shut off, you know, uh, the black communities, the Latino communities, et cetera. That's really it. You know, one, one comment I'll hear from, I guess, the older South Asians that, I, that are, that choose to be quiet is, that I'll hear that they'll say, oh, if they just work harder, they'll, they'll be successful. Do you come across that? And, and what do you usually say to people that say that? You know, it, it, it's, it's so funny because um, a lot, my upbringing has a lot to do with that. Um, I'm the, the son of two Pakistani Hindu refugees into the U.S. I was born in South Central LA. So my, my upbringing from the very beginning has shown me, has brought me closer to this communities that are often shunned by South Asians in North America. And I quickly realized that brilliance is, is absolutely universal, regardless of what pocket of the world you're from. But it's this ability to plug in that brilliance into an infrastructure that can take you to you know, socioeconomic success that is not evenly distributed. Uh, this is everything from schooling systems to, you know, if you really think about it, in certain schools in the inner cities, you're being taught uh, if, if John has three apples and two of them have to go away or two of them are given to someone else, 
Whereas if you look at what private schools are being taught, you'll have, you know, Sally has three employees and two of them are going to go somewhere else. So just from the very beginning, mm-hmm. there's that divide in education. And this, you know, gets wider and wider as you continue up the, uh, the, the age ladder. But really, you know, the thing that I tell everyone is uh, stop, reflect, understand that for you to get to where you are, you are the beneficiary of a lot of stuff that many others might have taken. And uh, you have to look at everyone else's current situations and realize that they might not have that exact infrastructure that you had that allowed you to excel, whereas they have, you know, have not been able to even scratch that surface. Yeah, I think the word systemic, right? It's a systemic oppression that I think we have um, some, t- some, t- some trouble uh, sort of grasping. So that's such an important topic. How, do you, how does Asana Voices determine what topics you cover? It's a great question. And uh, what I want to say is Sauna Voices, you know, has a absolutely brilliant team. And I think the most core component of the way we operate is rooted in our chief of public policy, Yush. And so what Yush does is he uh, prepares regular briefs that notify our team of relevant current events, stories, and policy discussions. Then these briefs are, you know, Spread out through our team, our CMO and chief of programming identify exactly based off of what's in the brief, what's highlighted, uh, what exactly is the best course of action. So some things are best for written content that might be an Instagram post, but some things might need to be taken a step further, um, such as not only coming out with a organization-wide statement, but a whole marketing campaign behind um, let's say legislation such as the South Asian Heart Health Awareness and Research Act um, that we want to help uh, ensure the passage of in this com- coming session. So all of that again is rooted in uh, a weekly brief that we get from our chief of public policy. So structure. It sounds like you have the structure in place. So it doesn't really matter what topic it is. You can now get disseminate information like you want in whatever platform you see fit. Absolutely. We, we see no real difference between any of the events that we hold and the content, whether it's video um, or short form written. Uh, really, we combine all of those and say that this is how we're raising awareness. This is just one part of what Asana Voice is trying to do. And to make sure there's some sort of cohesive uh, approach here, we uh, peg all of that to the work of our chief public policy. And we had a great talk about the Rohingya crisis with some incredible panelists, which went really well. What, um, what surprised you about that, that talk? Was there something that you really thought, wait, wow, I didn't know this from that talk? Because I had a few things that I definitely took away from that talk. You know, um, outside of the fact that we worked with some amazingly brilliant panelists um, that have a wide variety of backgrounds, I would say the number one thing that really just became much more apparent to me was um, we had somebody who came in uh, who is obviously on the ground near Bazaar, and she was talking about how exactly would we reprimand Myanmar because the, the mm. impact of what would happen if the UN or any other NGO um, would reprimand a country like that, you know, you're, you're not, you're not dealing with, your typical state actors, you're dealing with also a lot of non-state actors as we've seen recently in Myanmar. Um, 
you know, and that that made it apparent to me that it's not just easy, as easy as sanctioning. So companies. complex, yeah. It's incredibly it's so complex. complex, and and it's and and Cam, I think you and I can both agree that it's just unfortunate that so many innocent lives are at the balance mm. of various organizations and state groups. You know, some that might not have their best interests at heart. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, what's your background for people that don't know? Be, you know, before Asana, what, what's your background? What, what have you done? What would you go to school for? Sure, absolutely. So I, I went to undergrad here in UC Santa Barbara, uh, studied political science and statistics. Shortly after, I moved to Houston, where I was the first employee at a small consulting firm. I uh, got to work on a bunch of interesting projects. Shortly after, I fell into my, my first venture, which was called Bubcart. It was an e-commerce platform that I built completely out of accident for my mom and um, eventually exited that in 2019. And uh, shortly after, I started Graywall, which is an investment firm. We do private equity and VC. Our private equity focus is investing in underinvested neighborhoods. And on the VC side, which is where we spend most of our time, is the core thesis is there is no fourth industrial revolution which means there's no breakthroughs in agriculture, in aerospace, in biotech, in protein folding, in vehicle design, in space, anything without a foundation of secure intelligence, which is why we uh, invest heavily into early stage AI data and security companies. What's, how does, so, you know, AI and, and data, those are, so, those are sort of key terms that you hear often, right? So how, can you tell just like a normal person how their lives are going to be different by all these advancements in AI and data? Sure. I think, I think um, the best approach is actually reminding the audience how prevalent AI already is in their daily mm -hmm. life. Um, when you're asleep, you might have a alarm, you might have an app that tracks your sleep, you might have uh, some sort of app that tells you that times when exactly you should wake up and when you should go to sleep. So from the very moment you're sleeping, there's something that's in a device that's already thinking for you. So that's where AI begins to touch your life. Throughout the day, uh, when you've started you know, watching TV or you're in the car and you, have, uh, you plug in your, your phone and you want a specific playlist or you want a specific song or you want a specific podcast, such yeah. as the Boney podcast, all of that is featured onto your device by artificial intelligence. And you go further into work and uh, you might be opening up uh, your various email inboxes. Most of those emails that have hit you overnight have actually gone into various spam folders or other folders. That's all done through artificial intelligence. Um, you might come home after work and uh, if you're single, you're probably... Um, on some sort of dating app, um, and all of these people who are really, you know, your potential future, uh, this is so scientific, but mates are really picked for you through an algorithm that becomes intelligent by every single swipe that you make. Um, so really, from 24-7 throughout your day, you're touching some sort of artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence, what it really does, it takes a bunch of data points that a system collects throughout, you know, n number of time, and it is able to make statistically significant conclusions or predictions based off of past data. 
Um, so you can already tell how AI and data are very much interrelated with each other. So uh, when it comes to AI, there's, I think, like two camps in terms of how fearful uh, people are uh, when it comes to AI. So Mark Zuckerberg's on, you know, like glasses, glasses half full type of person. He, he sees, you know, um, sunshine and rainbows when it comes to AI. And then you have Elon Musk, who's very fearful of power of AI and how dangerous it can be. Where, where are you in that spectrum? You know, I, I, I'll probably seem like I have a tinfoil hat on, but, you know, I'm... I'm cautiously optimistic in the near to medium term, and in long term, I'm incredibly fearful. Uh, the reason being is AI, um, it, the, the, it, it starts with the education, you know, who's getting educated, what countries are investing the most in AI, and unfortunately, they're the ones that have nationalized a lot of other major uh, components of tech. So let's take China, for example. China so far right now is one of the biggest investors and um, homes to those who are learning specifically for AI. Um, of course, we all know, you know they have their own outlook when it comes to artificial intelligence. But what really scares me is there's going to be a point in the future where our countries will need to value collaboration over competition. And collaboration needs to be baked in in the most foundational aspects of our society, which includes artificial intelligence, given how pervasive it is. But looking at how the landscape is shaping up right now with China and the U.S. really going the trade war, at the, you know, if you really boil it down, it's over everything that deals with the next generation of computing and AI. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really... I'm a little fearful because, you know, you've got people who may or may not understand what AI is, and they're the ones that are leading the legislation on various, you know, levels of government. They're in charge of, uh, you know, legislating something that, that might have, uh, at, at some point, um, you know, might become some sort of national security threat. And mm -hmm. I, don't think we've, I don't think we've done a fantastic enough job of equipping our, you know, researchers, our academics, our students companies um, with the infrastructure to protect themselves of any sort of agonizing um, body that uses AI. The reason it's you know smart to be somewhat skeptical is what we're seeing right now in terms of AI, you know, when we think of Siri and Alexa, um, these are things that have been worked on for only a handful of years. Mm -hmm. We haven't given decades upon decades of research. And really our research is not growing linearly, it's growing exponentially. And so when people are worried about things that are, they think might be a decade or two out, really, those are things that are going to be five to seven years out. Wow. And uh, we're, no, we're, we're incredibly far behind the curve. We're not investing into our own STEM education the way we should. Uh, and really, you know, the way I see it, uh, to boil it down, is there will be, you know, we, we will see a lot of positive results from the advent of AI up to a certain moment. And my guess is that the returns from that point on, uh, if you were to plot this on a graph, would fall completely down. Um, meaning there would be, it's not even diminishing returns, it would just be straight up negative returns for society at that point. Um, wow. Yeah, but there's, there's still a lot of positive benefits up until then. Uh, and you know, we should use AI to help you know, advance society for, for so many things, but you know, it is, 
it is, it is, you know, AI has so many things that we're not even talking about, you know, philosophy, po politics, uh, legislation, regulation, computer science. There's so many intersections at AI that are barely being, um, you know, scratched as, as we're speaking. I recently took a, a data science bootcamp and learned a little bit about deep learning and machine learning. It's insane what it can literally just do by itself. I mean, you, they have these learning mechanisms where the, the, learning, the machine learning algorithm learns from data, you feed it. Um, and it's like, it's, like an, it's like, it's not even, I was going to say child, but it's not a child because it's a really intelligent being. Like it can learn faster than even humans. Which is really scary. So I think let's say what's scary is I guess you know what what if someone feeds it data that is is dangerous, right? So it's learning from it's learning from whatever data you feed it. Absolutely, and and the best way to put it is AI really uses statistical techniques to draw correlations, and that's how it learns. But humans really learn by reasoning about cause and effect. Um, so when you think about you know from the, the beginning times of humans, when a sun, you know, this fiery ball of gas would show up during the day and hide and then come back the next day, that's when we started having the advent of sun gods, fire gods. Um, so the way we learn is incredibly different than computers, but our human ego has still decided that we should train computers the way we learn ourselves. And that's why it goes back to that whole philosophy question I brought up where, you know, are we just really acting like god by by calling you know different types of uh you know since you study ai you know there's there's uh neural net there's there's neural processing all these types of things but neurons and neural those are all human um elements right and so this level of anthropomorphism that we're applying to computers you know it, it really goes into that philosophy of how much of this is because of our own ego it's, mm. it's really interesting in this field it just you know, it's a huge can of worms once you open it up. One thing you mentioned earlier, you said we are not investing enough in STEM. So I'm assuming by we, you meant the United States. Do you think countries like where we're from in South Asia are investing enough in those fields? That's a great question. And again, it's all, it's all relative, right? Uh, a country that has GDP in tens of trillions uh, and is able to literally print its way out of, you know, n number of economic issues um, should have no problem investing in the future of uh, their researchers. Um, but when it comes to South Asia, it's really, there's so many issues in South Asia to begin with, and there's only a set number of resources. Do we invest those limited resources into the future of STEM, or do we invest it in towards uh, basic primary education to ensure that there is a base, basic uh, baseline for all civilians in various pockets of South Asia. Um, and then, you know, then there's healthcare and food insecurity, and there's so many things, there's so many other issues in South Asia to, to really invest in yeah. that I would say AI research, as important as it is, quite frankly, there are better ways that those countries um, can invest the resources. Simply put, the only reason I'm saying that is because they will eventually be able to get access to off-the-shelf solutions mm. that are grown in other countries. Um, let honestly let the richer countries deal with the R and D spend, um, yeah. and you should just be the beneficiary of all of that R and D spending.
Um, it's actually one of the reasons, Cam, that I'm the most bullish on pockets of South Asia and Eastern Africa when it comes to AI and healthcare, AI and finance, simply because those are the places that are going to benefit from the most when it comes to R&D spending elsewhere flowing directly to those pockets of the world. Mm. So today, uh, I think I checked earlier today, crypto, uh, Bitcoin's at, I think, 53,000. It's down a little bit. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on crypto? And I, I had someone on the podcast yesterday who's very bearish. She's, finance, she's a finance expert, um, personal finance expert. She was very bearish on crypto. I have my own feelings before I tell you what my feelings are. What are your thoughts on cryptocurrency as an asset class, but also specifically Bitcoin? Mm. So to give you some context, um, I've been trading Bitcoin since 2013. Um, and I've been really involved. So I was involved with Seller's initial drop back in 2014 when it was still part of Stripe. Wow. Um, so I've been very bullish on cryptocurrencies for a lot of reasons. But I'll, I'll take Bitcoin for, for this specific use case. I think the true benefit from cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, will be seen in the economies that suffer from poor decisions made from centralized systems. Think about the fiscal and monetary policymakers in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, MENA, Pakistan, Southeast Asia. The fact that decentralized currencies will enable a level of stability and transparency around transactions for the youngest, often poorest populations of the world, you're going to pull hundreds of millions, if not billions, out of poverty. Um, and you're going to unlock the next gen, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about. Univer brilliance is universal. And when we build out infrastructures, which includes financial transaction infrastructure, monetary infrastructure, when we build that out, which we here in the US take for granted, we're giving people the stability that they have not grown up with for years. And the second you do that is the second you've allowed them to start their own businesses without worrying about currency fluctuations mm. or what the government's going to do um, with those transactions. Uh, and, you know, likewise. So I'm incredibly Brit, uh, bullish. Uh, I think, I think uh, those who get Bitcoin are usually understand the technology or understand the impact on frontier markets. Uh, and in terms of price targets or whatever, I mean, you know, whether it goes to 100,000, 200,000, whether or not Bitcoin is the one that makes it among yeah. all cryptocurrencies is not something we know, but cryptocurrencies are here to stay and they'll make a huge impact for sure. Okay. So you're not someone that's like, it's a uh, Bitcoin or nothing, right? It's, so you're saying that obviously the technology behind it is here to stay. Bitcoin may be the, that, the, the uh, currency that's here to stay, but it could be some of the other cryptos as well. Um, what do you think uh, about uh, Ethereum? Uh, I feel like there's so many use cases for Ethereum, which to me seems like it's more uh because so many use cases it seems like it's more here i'm here about music share sharing and contracts and DeFi. yeah absolutely and and the cool thing with ethereum is um you know baked into its design is this feature of smart contracts um so really you know you can use you know ethereum or ethereum like um systems for everything from securing all of your robots that are on the floor of a factory, secure, securing satellites who are off interconnected with each other. Or, you know, it, um, for something like GameStop, you know, you can really have uh, a, a, um, a decentralized 
hedge fund, which can cater to those who are part of Wall Street bets, but they can all sign that smart contract, which in the finance world we're used to seeing uh, as the operating agreement for hedge funds. Um, and that's how you ensure trust. So, you know, again, there's a lot of different cryptocurrencies that we can use. Ethereum is is definitely one of them. And I think we've, you know, there will probably be one that hasn't been created yet that will, you know, be in the market cap of $100 billion in the next five to six years. Wow. It's so tough to just navigate through all of the noise. And this way, like, hundred, there's like over 100 bit cryptos now. It's difficult to figure out, for me anyway, which one to listen to. There's so much news, so much, there's so many quote-unquote experts, um, so many channels that are out there that speak to this. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot of information, right? It's information overload. That absolutely is. And uh, I, I think those who will succeed are those who can boil down the information and understand it and build context around it, which means an investment thesis sooner than those who can't. Yeah, uh, It used to be all about the speed information, but everyone's connected to high-speed internet now. So now it's the ability to you know, translate all of this into something that's actionable. Yeah, the thing that also, as I work in legal and compliance, and that's the part that I'm unsure about because I get the idea of you know um, the government being out of this, and that's one of the draws to it. Or, but I feel like anytime something goes wrong, that's when people want the government involved, right? And that's what I'm fearful of. Like, you know, I get it. I get it. right now it's decentralized, and government's not really you know they're trying to figure out what to do with it, um, whether to regulate it, how to regulate it, but. You know, once that becomes, uh, once the government gets involved, right? What do you think happens to the, you know, the plus uh, the price fluctuations and the volatility? You know, it's it's interesting because the government, really, if you think about it, in a capitalist society, is nothing more different than a legalized, the largest legalized monopoly that happens to also participate in that economy. Uh, it's just the government is governed in terms of its limitations. So the government, you know, participating in some sort of decentralized currency, whether it's Bitcoin or anything else, um, yeah, it, it will definitely open a can of worms when it comes to compliance. But really, I, I think, is how do you bake in um, crisis time monetary and fiscal policy when currencies are now decentralized? Um, for example, you know, right now, as speaking, there's almost $2 trillion worth of stimulus that's being debated in Washington, D.C. And that's very easy to do when, you know, you are both the, the debtor, the creditor, and the money producer, or all three of those, right? And that's not the same with these cryptocurrencies. So it, it will, you know, I think for governments really adapt something like this, it, there will need to be a fundamental shift in how governments actually govern its citizens. So I think we're still a few years away from seeing some sort of real legislation around cryptocurrencies. From that That's a good of source of information for to learn about cryptocurrency or just learn about finance in general. What's a good source of information or sources of information that you would recommend? You know, what's interesting is, and, and a lot of people will really laugh at this, uh, Twitter has honestly been a pipeline straight into one of the most brilliant people or all the brilliant people in the world. Um, humans love helping each other. And I think we've seen that on Clubhouse with their micro communities mm. and with Twitter. You know, financial Twitter has been amazing in terms of wanting to help each other, um, share ideas, share knowledge when it comes to how to trade, how to invest. 
Uh, and same thing with cryptocurrencies. Um, so, th- so I, I would really, you know, if you're on Twitter, really just find a bunch of really brilliant, talented people on, on Twitter and, and start networking there. Uh, mm. Ask them, you know, to hop on a call if you don't understand anything. I'd be happy to, to help. But honestly, tw- Twitter has been a great way to learn all of this. And you can't see him, but he's wearing a Twitter, sh- Twitter shirt. You're wearing a Twitter shirt. I, I am. I'm wearing a Twitter shirt. <laughs> so I want to switch up a little bit. I, I like talking to, I, I, I'll call you like hyper-productive people like you who seem to do, you know, so many things um, and seem to be really good at it. I'm really curious about how you manage your time um, and also some tips uh, on how to be more productive. Because I, 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 it is impressive with everything you have going on. So how, how do you do it? That's a, it's a great question. And uh, I, I wish this version of me had met, you know, 18 to 20 year old me much earlier, uh, because I was always, you know, running at 100 and close to being burnt out, you know, for a long time. And I realized that first, I need to start my day by focusing entirely on me, I need to have that me time. Uh, and so what I do when I wake up is I meditate, I read something, uh, eat a good, healthy breakfast, and work out. I call it feeding my mind, body, and soul. What time do you usually wake up? uh, Anywhere between 5.30 and 6. Wow. So you're an early riser. Uh, Yeah. uh, Were you always an early riser? (laughs) Uh, No. It's one of those things that I just learned really quickly. You know, I absolutely, if I need to, if I want to grow as a person, as a human, as a student of life, I need to spend that time in the day that's uh, very core to my own personal growth. Um, and again, I, I spend you know maybe an hour or two doing those things, but the positive effects of, of that routine it just you know grows exponentially since the moment you start it. So How that's many the hours first thing do you I usually do. sleep? I, I aim for a minimum of seven hours. Okay. I aim for, for a minimum of seven hours. And the second thing, I would say, especially in the Zoom era that most of us are in, or hopefully all of us are in, um, I restrict my meetings to only a certain time of the day. Uh, I, I've, I've noticed you know, a lot of people get stressed because they're on back-to-back calls or back-to-back meetings throughout the day. And I'll ask them, well, are you benefiting from spending this much time on Zoom? Are you getting the information that you need from these calls? Or are you just getting fatigued by the end of the day? And they'll quickly realize that most of those meetings didn't have to take that long. They didn't need to block that much time. So what I tell everyone is just restrict a couple hours of the day if you're able to, if you're able to, um, and that's where you should just stack your meetings. That way your brain just mentally gets ready for alone time versus meeting time. Um, And it gives your brain enough room and enough time during the schedule to make that mental shift. Um, which again, it's, it's difficult in, in the Zoom era because we're not used to engaging with people primarily through virtual mediums. And third, um, because I have so many other things going on is I often have themed days. Um, and this is again, just to make sure my brain doesn't get fried from having to switch, you know, every hour from VC to private equity to markets to sauna voices and back and forth. Uh, I make sure I have themed days to make sure, again, my brain doesn't get fried along the way. What, so how often are you on your phone? Are you one of those uh, people that are cognizant of how much time you spend on your phone? Or do you feel like you use it as a tool and you don't let it use you? I, I use it as a tool and I don't let it use me. 
Um, and uh, I, I swear this has nothing to do with the, uh, the tinfoil AI comments I made earlier in the episode, <laughs> but really it's more so um, I want to be mindful of the present. Uh, when I'm talking to someone or I'm enjoying a meal or I'm reading a research report or I'm listening in on a pitch, I want to be 150% present in that moment. And the only way I do that is if I minimize distractions around me, which includes my phone. You know, we have so many notifications that are always pinging us and pulling us left and right. And most of those times, we don't need to tend to those notifications right then and there. Um, I often, you know, I'm notorious. I'm known to have, you know, my battery close to one or two percent throughout the day on my phone. I don't really care where my phone at, phone is. It can be somewhere on the couch or, you know, my room or whatever. Um, I really try to stay as focused with whatever's in front of me as possible. That's a great tip. What's your? Uh, you have a large team at Asana Voices, and I'm sure at your uh, VC firm as well. What's your management style? That, that's a great question. I would say I'll, I'll use Asana Voices as a as a template here because that one's pretty easy to break down. There, there are two key things to why things are working well at Asana Voices. The first is we operate on five-year timeframes when we discuss goals. I don't care about what's going to happen this weekend, next weekend, or a month out, or two months out. I care about the work that we're putting in that's going to impact the course and direction in 2025 and 2026. And so that, right off the bat, makes sure that everyone on the team also starts to operate with Asana Voices being a long-lasting organization. From the very from the very get go, right? Of all discussions, that's the way we frame it. Second thing is, I'm incredibly strict on vision and very flexible on details. So, what does that mean? And again, this is this is something that I've noticed from a lot of other mentors. I'll set the vision, or I'll work with it to create a long lasting vision for what Asana Voice is exactly trying to do. But when it comes to exact execution, and when it comes to weekly and monthly goals and KPIs and, you know, all these other um, metrics that would make, you know, the consultants happy that are listening into this. I don't care. I, I honestly don't care because that's, that's not really what makes an organization thrive. Um, and now if you combine these two, you'll find out that our team absolutely thrives in an environment that is conducive to experimenting, failing quickly, and rewarding the right idea instead of the right person. Um, the right way, you know, the right way to manage and lead an organization, me, is to create an environment that will thrive without you. Um, that means you're not just someone who sets the vision and pace for the organization, but can clearly communicate it to the team and get team-wide buy-in to the vision. You aren't just someone who adds the right people to the team, but understands that individuals have different personalities, and personalities can often clash when put together incorrectly. You aren't just someone that needs to be able to provide criticism and feedback that's in line with the brand integrity that you want to be associated with, but to understand that empathetic leaders will ultimately always inspire trust and will always bring about the best for the team. So if I were to break up my role you know, from the usual leader and, and manager, it would really be pacemaker for the team, the team psychologist, the enabler. And again, luckily, I, I just have, you know, what I think is the best team in the world that makes this job incredibly easy. Where have you identified team members? Where, um, I know um, I've had the pleasure of meeting some of your team members. 
where have where did you find them and how do you identify the right uh, talent for your team? That's, that's a great question. And, and Cam, I'm sure you've seen this too, as someone who spends a great amount of time meeting people who are interested in joining your team. We're lucky where we get a lot of inbound offers from brilliant people who want to work with us. Uh, but when it came to the core members, you know, the, the co-founders of the team, um, we, were de- we were figuring out how we piece the long-term vision and play it to our strengths. So our CMO, our chief marketing officer, for example, um, we couldn't think of anyone better because she you know, professionally advertises for Netflix. Um, mm. So clearly on our team, she's the best fit for that type of role. Uh, when it comes to our chief of public policy, Yash, we've got someone who has done you know, undergrad and grad uh, in public policy at Duke University, works as a policy consultant, really has their entire life built up to lead organizations from a public policy point of view. And third, Neeraj, our chief of programming, uh, although he's a resident physician, you know, and, uh, you know, focusing on anesthesiology, I would say he's more of a community builder. He's more of someone who looks to give others a platform, which is the core competency of someone that needs to run program. So those four, luckily, you know, we, we obviously, uh, knew each other and you know we were able to band together very quickly and in terms of find you know finding writers and people in video and partnerships we're, we're just you know it, it's honestly once you've built something where the story resonates with the public uh there will be you'll be you'll be your your toughest problem won't be finding people but it's saying no to people you would normally not say no to well, you talked about five-year plans and goals. So what's the five-year goal for Asana Voices? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. It's, uh, when we first started Asana Voices, all we were trying to do was become a platform to educate and engage South Asians in North America on economic, political, and social issues. But about three or four weeks into this process and having numerous phone calls with governing agencies, activists, advocacy groups, we realized that looking at something incredibly larger. We realize that we're looking at a gap between government that serves us and the South Asian community that was quite fragmented, to be honest. And so what we decided to pivot into away from just raising awareness is to really go out, build the infrastructure to drive economic, political, and social change for South Asians in North America. So success for us in five years is clearly defined by four separate things. One, how aware have we made our community about all the relevant issues, both in South Asia and in North America? Two, have we built a network of like-minded South Asian organizations in an effort to leverage our shared heritage to really unify our voices? I understand that South Asians shouldn't be put together all the time as some sort of monolith. But we have so much more in common than in, than in difference. And, and we really need to leverage that, come together, and make sure our voice is unified when it comes to driving change. Number three, have we made our voices heard by civic decision makers? And that's where we're at right now in our journey, because we are um, at the onset of starting this you know, South Asian heart health campaign um, that's really pegged to legislation in the U.S. And so really, that's just a health check. You know, can we raise awareness? Can we build a network? 
can we be heard by civic decision leaders? And really personally for me, our, my fourth goal is, have we inspired a generation of South Asians in North America to become change makers for their own community to the point where a sound of voices as an organization might not be needed in the future because we've done enough work to where that initial thought process of wanting to raise awareness and keep people engaged is so intrinsically part of who South Asians in North America are that there wouldn't be a need for an organization to do that for us. Um, those would be our four goals. Wow, you inspired me. That was, that was amazing. What, is, what does your parents uh, think about everything you, you do? Do they ever like, tell you to slow down? Or what does your family and your parents think about it? You know what? My parents um, have given me, from the very beginning, a level of confidence that I'm so incredibly grateful for. Um, they, you know, very early, they, you know, taught me about risk-taking and, and moving up and pushing myself and just believing in myself and not really, you know, actively looking to others to, you know, hold their hands and kind of use them as platforms, but really become self-sufficient. And so from the very beginning, they've, they've helped me uh, believe in myself, you know, whether it's uh, taking classes that I definitely shouldn't be in, whether it's being involved in extracurriculars that I'm clearly, I've not been given the athletic capabilities to you know, to be part of, whether it's uh, switching my major over and over and over again in college because I didn't really understand what the heck I was getting involved in. They, at times, had more confidence in me than I might have had in myself. And uh, that, you know, gave me the confidence to leave a great consulting job for a startup that I had no idea would even work out um, or starting an investment firm or, again, you know, recently with the Sound of Voices, which, again, you know, is not something that's typical in our community. And when we did start Asana Voices, we did get a lot of backlash from our community. And we were told to stop and we were told to stay quiet, put our heads down, just work, you know, earn now and teach people later. And uh, my parents, you know, have stood shoulder to shoulder with all of us. And I'm, you know, again, very grateful for that. Well, I'm surprised you said risk-taking because we've, I've had many people on the podcast, Bengali people, and they've actually said that that's something that uh, Bengalis are not taught to do is, is take risks, calculated risks, or any type of risks, really. So, so it's interesting that you say that because I feel like that's something I've been talking about on the podcast and that we need to do more of. Um, you know, I think, well, it's understandable. I think Bengali parents, I mean, South Asian parents, you know, come here and, you know, they look for stability and, um, you know, and so they uh, ask their kids to go into fields that are stable and, you know, but taking, you know, risks, uh, it's not really something in my experience anyway, and some of the folks I've spoke, spoken to, not really something that we're pushed to do. So it's interesting that you say that. So I think it's maybe, maybe do you think it's a little bit, do you think that's uncommon in South Asian households? Yeah, it, it's, it's incredibly uncommon. Um, and, uh, you know, if I was to really trace back, I would say, um, you know, my my parents just moving here, that whole story of, you know, I was supposed to be born in Pakistan. I wasn't supposed mm. to be born in the U.S. But what had happened was, uh, you know, my uncle on his way back to school, he was actually uh, violently attacked. And that, you know, sparked this thought in my parents saying, we were just 19 and 20 at the time, 
to drop everything in Pakistan, get a one-way ticket, go to go to the U.S. and file asylum there. And uh, so them leaving everything, what they've called home, you know, history, heritage, culture, traditions, everything, and overnight coming over here and landing in a place that was not known to be safe by any means, because and and again, this was around the time of those Rodney King riots, so that was in our mm. backyard, and wow. we've so I, I've grown up with you know, some sort of turmoil in that backdrop. Mm. Um, and, and so they've, and, and I've seen my, you know, I've seen us, you know, and this is a story that a lot of children of immigrants, immigrants can, can relate to the struggles and the trials and tribulations in those early days. And even if you might make it, you know, whatever that might mean for you, you might have those occasional dreams or even nightmares of those times or those early days. And I, I understand, you know, and I understand why a lot of South Asians do veer away from risk taking. Uh, but uh, I, I would say again, um, you know, it's it's. I, I think educated risk taking is something that should be celebrated in our community, mm. uh, and it's something that I hope through, you know, organizations that you've built such as Boney or Sana Voices and so many others can show that we can provide a positive impact by taking that entrepreneurial itch out of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, that's what Boni is about. It's about representation, but it's also it seems less risky when there's another Bengali person doing that, right? Like that's what that's what it's about. So you can put, if you if some if a if a child if a kid in high school can say, "Well, it really it's not that risky." Look at this other Bengali dude starting a BC firm. So it's really you know, so look at us, someone like that looks like he looks like me and in, in our, from our community doing it. So it's not as risky. That's why representation is so 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 important. I I can't like I. I, I can't stress that some, stress that enough. It's difficult to tell people that are not in an unrepresent, un, underrepresented community why representation is so important. Do you ever find that? Do you ever find that from non um, people that are outside of the community? Like, why why is representation so important to you? Do you ever find that from people? Absolutely. Um, so I don't know about you, but I'm a huge Star Wars junkie. My family are just Star Wars junkies, and um, I got into a conversation with. Um, friend of mine who was telling me and a Korean friend to, you know, why aren't we happy that there's finally an Asian? So it was specifically East Asian, but there, yeah. why, aren't they, why aren't we happy that there's, all, that there's Asian on screen in Star Wars? And we said, well, look, anytime we've been portrayed in the media, and this is just the media, right? There's so many other aspects to, to the way the world works, yeah. but media has such a platform where we want to be seen in roles that we want to see ourselves in, right? We want to be the heroes. We want to be, um, the, we want to be the main villains at times, right? Or the, the lead actors, the lead actors. We want to be the person that can define art for so many South Asians, East Asians, you name it, for generations mm -hmm. to come. And represent, representation starts from that single moment. Um, and then if you think about it, you know, in tech, uh, the largest tech companies finally have, um, you know, almost all of them are led by South Asians, right? Um, when, uh, you know, when a bunch of South Asians uh, joined various White House councils or advisory yeah. roles in this recent uh, term, uh, I was told, well, aren't you happy that South Asians are finally getting somewhere? And I said, there's always room to improve. Um, I don't want to feel like we should rest here. I, I feel like as a, a group, 
that represents such a large population, such a diverse, colorful population, um, which is South Asia, we should really be making our mark in a country like the U.S. that can really benefit from our shared experiences. So, you know, I am very happy for that representation because it allows me and allows future generations to see that that is possible. But what I tell to those people is there's always ways to improve. Absolutely. Well, listen, I, wow, it's all, um, already been an hour. I can't believe we've been talking for an hour. This is, uh, I feel like we can talk forever for a long, long time. But it was uh, great having you on. I'd love to have you come back. Love everything you're doing with the sound of voices and I hope and, and I, I, we will partner with a lot more things in the future. Excited and I'm really excited about that. And thanks for having me on. Uh, great chatting with you as always. Gotta be honest, with diamonds and pearls, yeah, yeah, Bengalis in New York, all over the world, uh, it's the bony show, uh, can you handle this, representing the boroughs where the bangles live, from the slang we spit, to the gangs we're with, it doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh, I say, hey, come on, can you handle this, representing the boroughs where the bangles live,